You're listening to the Good Samaritan Anglican Church Podcast. The following sermon was recorded on September 23rd, 2018. A reading from the Gospel of Mark. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So the first thing I want to do today is just say a quick word about the wisdom of Solomon, because it's not in my Bible. I don't know if it's in your Bible. It's not in the, in the Pew Bible there. That's why we had to print it in the bulletin. So I wanted to just ask, where does this book come from? I'm not going to preach on it, uh, but I want to talk about where this book comes from. It comes from uh, a series of books called the Apocrypha or sometimes the deuterocanonical books. And they have a, an interesting history in the church. Um, and the reason they have an interesting history is it has to do with languages and translations, basically. So if we go a long, long way back, you remember the Israelites, they ended up in exile. They had to leave their home, and they had to go into a faraway land called Babylon, and they had to speak the language of the people in Babylon, And during that that time of exile and in the years afterwards, more and more of the people of Israel began to learn and use the language of Greek, not Hebrew. And so actually the entirety of the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek. And this translation was called the Septuagint. Say Septuagint. God bless you. So in the Septuagint, there were, uh, there were all of the books that you find in the Old Testament, but there were also a few extra books that were from the intertestamental period. That's the period between when the Old Testament ends and the New Testament begins, that period uh, between the Old Testament and Jesus. And there was a lot of stuff that happened in those years. Uh, and so there were some historical books about a family called the Maccabees who tried to lead revolts against some of the occupying authorities. And there were some wisdom books written, like the Wisdom of Solomon. And there were some other books that were written, but we only have them in the Greek language. They were never part of the Hebrew canon of the Old Testament. And so fast forward a few years, like 400 years, to a guy named Jerome. And when Jerome came on the scene, nobody spoke Greek anymore, except for the people in the Greek church. Uh, But the people in, in the Western church all spoke Latin. Do you remember that from your history lessons? The Roman Empire had taken over everything. Everybody was speaking Latin. And so the church said, hey, 
we need the Bible to be in Latin. And so a guy named Jerome was set to the task of translating the Bible from Greek to Latin. And when he did so, he realized, because he was trying to go back to Hebrew and translate from Hebrew, he realized that some of these books were not in the Hebrew language. And those are the books that he separated out and called the Apocrypha. He left them in the Bible, he just put them in a separate section of the Bible. And then fast forward a few hundred years more later, like a thousand years, um, you get to the Reformation. In the Reformation, they said, well, hey, these books, uh, they aren't in the Bible, and we're not going to consider them in the Bible, but we think they're still useful. And so we're still going to print them with our Bibles. We're just going to keep them in that separate section that Jerome sectioned off for us. And so some Reformed denominations like Anglicans and Lutherans decided to keep them in their Bibles and print them with the Bible. And other denominations like Baptists and some others decided to do away with them entirely. So what do we do with them today? Well, we don't consider them to be on the same level as Scripture, um, but we still consider them, like Cranmer did, useful for instruction and for learning stuff. And so we don't ever derive our theology from the Apocrypha, but we do still think it's worth reading. And so it does pop up in the lectionary from time to time. So that's your brief history lesson from Father Chris. And now we're going to talk about fishing. So back in 2007, a guy named George W. Bush, you may have heard of him, went fishing with another guy named Vladimir Putin. You may have heard of him too. And they were out in Maine and they went out in a boat and they, they went fishing. And this was big news because Vladimir Putin was visiting us from Russia and he caught a fish. It was a bass. And uh, experienced eyes, people who have, you know, fished for a long time, looked at that fish in the picture and they said, that fish is about 20 inches long. About 20 inches long. And so the boat came back to the shore and on the dock they had a press conference, which is what you do when two heads of state get together and go for a fishing trip. They had a press conference and in the press conference, George W. Bush said to the press that Vladimir Putin had caught a fish that was 31 inches long. Amazing, huh? The fish grew somehow from 20 inches to 31 inches in a short boat ride from the ocean or the pond, wherever it was, back to the shore. And so this made international media attention. It was in newspapers in Russia, it was in newspapers in the United States, that this fish that was 20 inches long was reported to be 31 inches long. And so some speculated that President Bush's fib was an effort to improve uh, relations between the U.S. and Russia. There were all sorts of uh, suspicions about this. But one guy, who was the editor of a fishing journal called Saltwater Sportsman, saw that this presidential fib uh, was pretty normal. And he put it into every man contact, saying, we've all had a non-fisherman on the boat and added a few inches or pounds to his or her catch. That's how he explained it. So what does this have to do with the scriptures? Well, if you look in our passage from Mark today, what you see is a group of guys walking down the road with Jesus, arguing about which of them is the greatest. Which of them is the greatest disciple among all of them? And some people have, have tried to do away with this passage, saying there is no way that these grown men were walking down the, the road arguing about who was the greatest. But I think this story about George Bush and Vladimir Putin and just about every other fisherman I've, I've ever met confirms that this is probably exactly what happens. That these guys were walking down the road, doing what guys do, arguing about who was the greatest or who caught the biggest fish or who made the most disciples or who cast out the most demons. Who knows exactly what they were arguing about? 
But that's exactly what happened. They were arguing about which of them was the greatest. And so when they get to the end of their journey and they, they get inside the house, inside uh, a little private space, uh, Jesus asked them what they were arguing about. He said, I, I heard you guys arguing on the road back there. What, what were you arguing about? Now, Jesus asked this question not because he doesn't already know the answer. As we read in the, the coming verses, we know that Jesus knew exactly what they were arguing about because he teaches them to the contrary. But it's just like every parent you know who asks their child, who's just come from around the corner, what were you doing over there? The parent knows exactly what the child is doing, but you want to ask them so that they have a chance to confess for themselves. And so this is what Jesus does with his disciples. He says, what were you arguing about on the road back there? And the disciples kept quiet, it says. It says they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And so Jesus sits them down, and he gives them this teaching from the Gospels today. He says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now, you might think this response is a little bit counterintuitive. It doesn't necessarily make a whole lot of sense. And it's true from a worldly perspective, because the kingdom of God is counterintuitive. It's kind of upside down from the way of the world, or rather, the world is upside down from the way things are supposed to be. And so while we're in the world and we perceive the world to be normal, the world is anything but normal. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's upside down from the way God created it. And what Jesus was trying to teach his disciples is to set things right, to right the ship that had fallen over. Now, it would make logical sense that if you wanted to be first, you should work hard and put yourself in that place, whatever it takes. It doesn't seem to make any sense at all to put yourself in the last place. That's what the world would tell us. Jesus has something different to say. But let's talk about the world first. The way of the world is that if you want to make it to the top, you have to fight for it and squash down the competition. We call this looking out for number one. Have you heard that before? Who's number one? Well, I am, of course. I'm the greatest, right? And so looking out for number one is all about looking out for yourself. It's looking out for your own interests, for your own desires, making sure that you get what you want out of life. And so we can apply this in a, in a number of different contexts, but the one we think of most of all is, is maybe the working world where you have jobs and relationships and uh, professional relationships and everybody's trying to work their way to the top up from the bottom level. And people sometimes do mean and nasty things to make their way up there. They cheat, they lie, they steal, they crush other people, they try and take out the competitors. People do this uh, between corporations where one company will actually buy up a whole other company that's a competitor just to squash out the market and make it easier for them to do business and, and be profitable. It's the way of the world, and so many things happen that way in the world. James talks about this a little bit in the, uh, the epistle lesson we read this morning. James says in, in verse 14, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder 
and every vile practice. Those are challenging words from James, but his point is clear. There's the way of the world, and there's the way that comes from above, the wisdom that comes from above. And that's, of course, the wisdom that comes from God himself. The world is a backwards place. And if we follow the ways of the world, we'll follow backwards ways. And God is trying to set things right. He's trying to restore the goodness of his creation. Fighting your way to the top might work sometimes. In fact, it does work a lot of the time. People do it all the time. We could all think of of examples in our own lives or examples of famous people who have fought their way to the top, uh, often through uh, disgenuous means, dishonest means. But consider the consequences of doing this. Broken relationships, hurt, frustration, and a constant fear that there's someone out there trying to get you and take your place at the top. You always got to watch your back if you're looking out for number one. Because if you squashed everyone to get where you are, you can be sure someone's trying to squash you to take your place. It's not a good way to live. It might even give you some heart trouble along the way. That's a, a sort of stressful way to live your life. Now, this is not to say that you should live your life as a doormat to let everybody walk all over you. Certainly you need to have boundaries. Certainly you need to stand up for yourself and defend yourself in some situations. But you don't need to crush everyone around you to make it to the top. In fact, you would do well not to do that, to live differently from the way of the world. And that's a hard calling because if everybody else is cheating to get ahead, you might feel like you have to cheat just to keep up. But God calls us to something different. God calls us to something different. So what is the way of the kingdom? How is it different? The way of the kingdom is that by serving others, we become great. That's basically what Jesus said in a nutshell. By serving others, we become great. And James talks about this too when he goes on from what we just read. He says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now that doesn't sound like looking out for number one. That looks like something very different. It looks like someone who's looking out for the others around them. Someone who's looking out for the interests of God and the expansion of his kingdom. Someone who's looking for peace. And peace can be costly sometimes. Peace often comes at a price. And so people need to be willing to to lay down their own ambitions and desires for the good of others, for the sake of peace, for the sake of Jesus. We need to be pure. We need to be gentle. Now you might say, how are we going to get anywhere doing those things if everybody else around me is, is working the way of the world and trying to squash me? Well, that's where God comes in. Because when we do things the way that God asks us to, he protects us, he watches out for us, he cares for us, and he makes sure that we're okay. And so when we look a little bit later in this book, uh, James says this, quoting from Proverbs chapter 3. He says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, why is that? 
Because pride is counter to what God is trying to instill in us. God doesn't want us to be prideful and boastful. There's lots of things that we can read in the Bible that talk about those things. God wants us instead to be humble, to put ourselves in the lowest position. And Jesus says, if anyone be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. If you do that, God will take care of you and God will give grace to the humble. He'll lift you up. He'll exalt you. Because you're living the way he wants you to live. Let's look at Daniel for a moment. Daniel is a great example of exactly this. Daniel lived in the Old Testament times. He came during that, that, uh, that period of exile that we were talking about just a few minutes ago. And so he was a part of the people that had been living in Israel and had been exiled and was taken away to this far-off land of Babylon. And when he got there, he was identified as uh, someone that the king wanted to have in his court. The king often did this because as the king conquered different nations and peoples, he tried to assimilate them into the nation of Babylon. And he tried to do that by taking away their language and taking away their culture and taking away their literature. And so he took this group of leaders from Israel and he put them in his care and he taught them the Babylonian language, which is called Chaldee, and he taught them Babylonian literature and he taught them about Babylonian gods. And so for a, a training period of three years, Daniel was among those who were in that, in that system, being prepared to be set before the king. And so Daniel gets into this and there's a guy who's in charge of all of these, these new recruits and he's giving them food from the king's table. Uh, now, this might be considered a privilege in a certain way, because if you've ever uh, had a chance, I haven't, but if you've ever had a chance to go to the White House for a state dinner, you hear news reports about how good the food is. Or if you ever have a chance to go to England and have tea with Queen Elizabeth, you can be sure that's going to be the best tea you've ever had, along with some pretty excellent cakes and other goodies to go with it. When you go to the king's table or the queen's table, you can be sure the food is good and rich and delicious with the best of the chefs. And so that's part of it. It was a, a privilege to be there, but it was also a symbol of domination because you were eating from the king's table and it was very clear where your meal was coming from. Now, there was something about this food that Daniel considered to be defiling. We're not sure what it was. Maybe it was pork. Maybe it was just the fact that it was uh, maybe offered to a, a foreign god. Maybe it was... Uh, just the fact that it was coming from the, the king himself. But whatever it was, Daniel took issue with it, and he asked the, the eunuch in charge of him, would it be possible if I could maybe eat some vegetables instead of the king's food? Every mother should be proud of Daniel, right? He wanted to eat his vegetables. He wanted to eat his vegetables. Uh, and the eunuch says, well, here's the problem. If you eat just vegetables then you're not going to look as healthy as the other people, and the king is going to see that, and he's going to criticize me for not giving you the right food. And Daniel says, okay, well, let's have an experiment. Let's, let me eat my vegetables for a period of time, and if I look the same or better than the other people, I get to keep eating my vegetables. And if I look worse, then we'll talk about it. Uh, and lo and behold, he eats his vegetables, and he looks better in appearance than the others, and he gets to keep going forward. So Daniel, from this, we learn that he's a man of integrity. He's not willing to compromise on the, the values that he holds dear and true to himself, which come from God. He's a man of integrity. He wants to stand 
in who he is as a Jew, as one under God. We also know that Daniel is a man of prayer. And if we fast forward a number of years, we find Daniel in another situation. At this point, he's risen up in the the king's court through a number of of successive monarchs and actually an an empire regime changeover. And now Daniel is is at the top of the officials. And the other officials, kind of like what we were talking about before in the the corporate world or in the, the backbiting, lie, cheat, and steal world, These other officials don't like Daniel being at the top. They want to be at the top themselves. And so they they figure out that Daniel, because he's a man of prayer, would never pray to anyone but God. And so they talk to the king and they say, Oh, king, wouldn't it be cool if everybody prayed to you instead of to anyone else? Just pray to you? And the king says, Oh, yeah, that's a pretty good idea. That's, That's pretty cool. And so he writes a law saying everybody has to pray only to the king. Now, this is something Daniel, of course, can't do because he's not willing to recognize the king as God or to worship any god but God. And so he goes to his room just like he always does three times a day. He opens his windows and he prays to the Lord God. And the people who are out to get him know this and they watch for it and they immediately go to the king and say, Oh, Daniel, did you hear what Daniel did? He was praying to his God, not to you. And you know what that law says that you just said? It means he has to die. And even though the king loved Daniel, and even though Daniel was a faithful servant and a trusted servant, the king says, yep, he has to die. And so they put him in the lion's den. But what does God do? God shuts the mouths of the lions, and Daniel is perfectly safe when the king comes back to get him the next morning. So Daniel over and over again proves himself to God by following God's way instead of the way of the world. He doesn't eat the defiled food. He doesn't pray to the king instead of to God. He does the right things. He sticks to who he is. He listens to God. And God, in the midst of all of that, exalts him and lifts him up. And so we see in the, in the sixth chapter of Jan- Daniel these words about him. It says, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished among all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king plans to set him over the whole kingdom. Daniel was a man of integrity and a man of prayer, and God blessed him, and helped him to rise up. He didn't have to squash anyone. He didn't have to lie, cheat, and steal. He didn't have to compromise his values. He stayed true to who God had made him to be, and God lifted him up. And we can think of many other examples of other people in the Bible who had very similar stories. They stayed true to God, they stayed true to God's ways, and God lifted them up and exalted them. Now, the problem with living in the world as we do is that the world is all around us. We're kind of like fish, and the world, the culture of the world, is the water that we swim in. It's hard to separate out uh, what's the kingdom and what's the world sometimes. But we need to be very careful to think about those things, to discern them carefully, to see where the line between world and kingdom is divided, and then to make sure that we're living our lives as people of the kingdom and not as people of the world. We have to be careful of this in the church, too. And as the the ACNA was being formed, we realized that 
some of the ways that we chose leaders in the past were not ways that were in line with God's kingdom. They were much more like the ways of the world. And so y'all know from the last couple of weeks that we just went through campaign season. You can't really miss it because of all the signs that were all over the roads and, and everywhere. You have to know all of the candidates' names by now because you see them every time you stop at a stoplight. And it used to be in the church that we would choose our leaders in very much the same way. We'd, we'd have a select group of people from whom people might be chosen, and they'd all have their sort of campaigns uh, to say, I'm the best, no, I'm the best, no, I'm the best. And eventually one of them would get elected and become the bishop or the rector or whoever it was. But when we formed the Anglican Church in North America, we wanted to do things differently. And so uh, especially as the time was drawing near for our first archbishop uh, to be done with his his term as archbishop and for the second archbishop to be elected, they decided to do it in a new way. And so they gathered all of the bishops together for something called a conclave. And instead of having candidates and political campaigns, they had a three-day-long prayer and discernment meeting. And everyone had a chance to share what was on their heart. Everyone had a chance to, to share what they believed God was calling the church to in the next season. They spent a lot of time reading scripture. They spent a lot of time praying. And eventually, they unanimously arrived at a discernment about who the next bishop, archbishop should be. That's a different way from the way of the world. And so in the church, we need to make sure that we're living differently. But not just for the sake of living differently, because we're training and discipling people to be out in the world, but not be of the world. You all live in the world. I live in the world. My house is in a neighborhood in the world. When we leave here, we're leaving this property and going into the mission field because it starts right on the other side of that, that parking lot as we go onto Old Jennings Road. We all live in the world. And so we need to take the things that we learn in the church, we need to take the culture of the church and extend it out into our lives so that we live as Christians wherever we go, whatever we do, wherever we work, whatever groups we're a part of. We need to live with kingdom values, live as kingdom people, just like Daniel did. And so we turn away from lying and cheating and stealing and manipulating all these ways that people try to get ahead in the world. And instead, we try to do it in the way that Jesus taught us, to put ourselves last and to be the servant of all. We need to entrust our future to the Lord through prayer, through working hard and through integrity, just like Daniel did. And when we do, we'll find that God puts us right where he wants us to be. And there's no better place to be than right where God wants you to be. It's the perfect place for you, wherever that is. And so you can trust that. You can enjoy that. You can rest in that. You can rest in the fact that you don't have to watch your back because Jesus is watching your back. You can rest in the fact that you didn't have to lie, cheat, and steal to get where you are. And so you've actually built friendships along the way, relationships, people who love you and support you and care for you and love you and actually want to see you succeed. Those are the people that we want to see rise up and become our leaders, right? People who have put others first and have chosen to be servants in whatever they do. And that's what we're called to be as Christians. And our ultimate example of this is Jesus his incarnation, and his passion. Maybe this is why Jesus chooses to give this teaching about servanthood 
immediately after he's given a teaching foretelling his coming death. In just the paragraph before this, as they were walking along the road, as they were having this argument about who is the greatest, Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Jesus knew that's the example he was about to give. And what more servant-oriented thing could Jesus have possibly done than to leave the glory of heaven, to take on human flesh and become one of us, to suffer and die a horrible death, taking our place on the cross so that we might be restored in our relationship to God? There is truly no greater service than that. And if Jesus is our leader, we should follow his example in the same way that he did, laying down our lives, giving up our desires for the sake of others, for the sake of his kingdom. Jesus didn't have to leave the glory of heaven. Jesus didn't have to die on the cross, but he wanted to be reconciled to you. And he was willing to leave his glory and to be subject to suffering and rejection and pain and death for our sake. Jesus became a servant. And if Jesus became a servant, we should too. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. And we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, for his incarnation, for his passion, for his resurrection. We thank you that by his act of service, he trampled down death by death and gave us life. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to follow in his footsteps, to follow Daniel and Joseph and others who have sought to be humble. And we pray, Lord, that you would watch over us and care for us and protect us, that you'd give us the assurance that when we follow you, there is nothing that can harm us. We pray for your protection, for your provision. And we pray that you give us the integrity and the grace to be able to stand firm when we're tempted to follow the ways of the world. Help us to choose you, Lord. Help us to live our lives as servants. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. This has been a production of Good Samaritan Anglican Church in Middleburg, Florida. For more sermons, sermon notes, and information about our congregation, please visit www.goodsamaritananglican.org slash sermons. If this podcast has been helpful to you, please subscribe and leave us a review with your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening. God bless you.